I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, college football fans across the nation and around the world. This is Tim May with the Tim May Podcast. Aptly named, right? I love it. And of course, this is Boston Ward. No more, no more. Uh, as you know him as Austin, it's just flat just Boston, Boston Ward. Wow. From now, because we've got get to, back in person and not on Zoom, and well, all you know, these things are changing. You put enough messages down at the bottom of my podcast, and by golly, I react to them. So, uh, <laughs> Boston Ward, it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's B O S S T I N. In case you're spelling it at home, because it can be difficult. Won't that be more confusing? I don't want them to forget my real name. Yeah. No, I, I think Boston Ward pretty much sums it up. Because oh, okay. you are the boss. Uh, just ask uh, Will Crawl. But I digress. <laughs> Bottom line is, uh, I've got an interesting podcast today, uh, yeah. Boston, because before I got here, I actually had a had a coat on and and did a little uh, a Zoom sit down with Gene Smith, the athletic director at Ohio State since nineteen or excuse me since two thousand and five, mm-hmm. going on what his twenty first uh, year, twenty first season at Ohio State as the athletic director, and and touched on a little bit of what was going on with the football team the first week back because I told him, you know, obligatory. I've got to ask those questions. But then we moved into what I really want to talk to him about. About uh, He's had his own, in my what I call it, an affirmative action program going on since he became a an athletic director way back when, 1986, at Eastern Michigan to Iowa State to Arizona State and then finally to The Ohio State University uh, where he's, his, he's about as long-lived a – an athletic director almost as they've ever had, right. and uh, or at least in modern times, for sure. And I just wanted to get his take on things. Uh, obviously, him being an African-American, his mom grew up in the South. We talked about that. He brings up the fact that, uh, you know, he and Sheila – uh, or a mixed race marriage, if that's what you want to call it. Really, it's modern day. If you look around the world now, uh, that's it's a marriage. It's yeah, two humans. it's a marriage. And uh, and but just you know the the uh, sort of the challenges he's had in his career, but how he's always sort of dragged a ladder behind him, and the ladder is helping other people climb that ladder. Right. And I thought it was a very uh, uh, interesting interview, one of the rare times you get to sit down and just one-on-one with Gene Smith. So without further ado, let's get to my interview with Gene Smith, the athletic director at Ohio State. And as promised, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back with Gene Smith, the athletic director at Ohio State since, what, 2005, Gene? Do I have that, uh, do I have that year correct? That's right, Tim. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while, man. I appreciate you coming on my podcast. You know, before we jump into what I really want to talk to you about, uh, it, give folks an update on where football stands in your mind. I mean, the football players all got to return to the Woody Hayes Lake Center nine at a time <laughs> last yeah. week, starting last week. And, uh, you know, just people out there are, are, are feeling, I think, a little more confident that there's going to be a football season. But what is the status as we sit here this week? Yeah, I think uh, we, we have some confidence that it can happen. Uh, we still have to get feedback from our medical experts on what that would look like for the players on a weekly basis and then in and around the game. Yeah. Uh, so we're just really beginning that conversations with our medical experts. I think the fan part we can figure out, uh, it will be significantly different. I mean, really different for our fans as they park and enter the stadium and sit and watch the game. There'll be a lot of requirements around that. Uh, but I think our fans could handle it. Uh, but I think that there's a chance as, as athletic directors, we really 
have shifted, uh, particularly last week, to start talking about that. Yeah, you know, and uh, I appreciate you uh, giving, me, giving us that update because, as you know, folks are pretty fired up about this being a great football team, et cetera, but will there be a season to play? Yeah. But let's, right. Just jump right, let's just jump right into it. I mean, in my opinion, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic situation has been at least joined by uh, what's been going on in this country, uh, the racial unrest, et cetera. Uh, and you just, just, I don't know, in your gut, are you, are, you just, are you a little hurt by what you've seen over the last several months? I mean, you're an African-American who has risen to one of the highest uh, spots you can rise to in college athletics, basically in athletics in this country and stuff. And did you think some of this was past us or did you know this, this was still bubbling there? Well, I've always known it was still bubbling. You know, it was just a matter of time for it to uh, be exposed like it is today and, and for people to have the reactions that they're having. You know, as you know, Tim, and, and you go back as well, and it, this goes back deep into our history. You know, it's so 400 years of, of racism and, and discrimination, and, and that's obviously changed over the years, but at the end of the day, they still exist. And so yeah. how, do we, how do we get away from this hatred and, and get to a level of respect in our society? And, and, and a lot of it's structural. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to change. And so mm-hmm. I, it's always been there. Um, I just frankly have a little more hope now that there's something might happen, but it's always been there. Yeah, you know, it's, people talk about steps at a time, but we've been taking these steps. I had Larry James. You know Larry James. I had him on with me. Last week, we uh, ironically, we both grew up in the same small town in, in Alabama, Demopolis, Alabama. You know, and I'm just saying 50, 55 years ago, a lot of these same things we were dealing with. And, uh, and, and he thinks really society has come a long way since then, but you still, that last 10% is maybe the hardest. And the reason I wanted you on, you know, obviously your mom was what, born and raised in the South and then and move to the Cleveland area. Just give us a little background on your family and how, you know, you kind of dealt with it. Yeah, you know, my, my dad was born in Indiana. He's raised in Kentucky. And my mom was born and raised in Hawthorne, Florida, a small town outside of uh, uh, Gainesville, in, yeah. uh, Florida. And, uh, you know, she had uh, eight brothers and sisters. And, and, you know, it was a little shack. And um, some of their birthdays are remembered based upon, you know, when a pig was born or somebody was hanged. And so, you know, yeah. she, she, uh, she grew up in the toughest part. And, uh, and, and she taught us, you know, so many different things and, and, and told us so many different stories. And so uh, she had a little bit harder life than my dad uh, from that perspective. My dad faced it in the Navy. He was a, a Navy electrician. And, um, in fact, he wasn't recognized for his hard work in, 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 our, in service of our country, frankly, until uh, President Clinton came into on the White House, and he ultimately bestowed some medals on my dad because uh, he was one of the first African-American electricians. And so, um, you know, it was, you know, they had many stories I used to sit around and listen to and, and learn a lot from. And uh, But they, they uh, I was blessed to have two great parents and uh, have them share their experiences, well, which also gave me perspective on life. Did you, how much did you experience of, uh, how much did you experience growing up in the Cleveland area of, of understanding your place, even up north. I mean, if you understand what I'm saying, what I'm saying right. there's an African-American. When did it first become obvious to you that there was, there was a bias out there? 
Yeah, my dad was an electrician. Uh, he was a general contractor. And, uh, you know, so I worked with him from the time I was five on. And, and every now and then we'd be somewhere uh, doing some work in, uh, in a building or something of that nature. And, and I would encounter it. I would see it. And not necessarily with me, but with some of the plumbers or masonry guys I was working with. And, and then, but really, it was in high school. You know, uh, my dad made a decision that I was no longer going to go to public school. I was going to go to Chanel High School in Bedford, so I bust out there. And uh, I was one of the uh, only three black uh, people in that school. And, wow. and as you can imagine, Tim, this is uh, the early 70s, right? Right after yeah. the civil rights movements and, you know, hippies were still alive, you know, and, and all that. And, and so it's a different type of gangs then. And so um, I, I, I faced it big time then. Uh, but I also... Uh, learn the other side of it because there's a lot of people that I met uh, who were very respectful and, and actually curious. And so I, I learned a lot there, uh, faced it big time there and a little bit when I went to Notre Dame, but, but not as much as in high school. Did you, did you feel though from that moment, on, did, did you feel a little bit like a pioneer in the sense of you were blazing some trails, whether, whether you even knew it at the time or not? Yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but I was blazing trails. And, uh, you know, interestingly, after I uh, left college and, and I was actually inducted into my high school Hall of Fame and I, I went back for it and, you know, I was I was like amazed at the number of uh, black kids who were at Chanel at that time. Yeah. I was like, you know, wow, you know, that that's when it hit me to your point that, you know, I did open some doors and, and um, I've always felt that uh, that was my blessing and opportunity in everything that I've done to be quite honest. Uh, uh, what I did is what I learned at Chanel, what I was able to do at Chanel uh, and, and try and help uh, those opportunities become realistic. And uh, then when I, uh, frankly, when I went into coaching, I was a, I was a coach at the age of 21 at Notre Dame and, yeah. and one of a few black coaches. And, and then obviously uh, from there. So um, yeah, I, I look back on it and felt fortunate that I had the opportunity. And that's why my dad always taught me just do things the right way. And I always knew that if I didn't do things the right way, I might be burning a bridge for somebody. I was going to say, what has stood out to me, though, about your background uh, is when there was an opportunity, it, looks, it looked like to do this, to, to move up, so to speak. I'm talking about you took it. I mean, uh, probably maybe sometimes a little – um, butterflies in your stomach, but, you know, to go to Notre Dame, uh, to take that coaching job, then to get into athletic administration, become a young, a young uh, athletic director in 1986, right, at Eastern right. Michigan. I right. mean, how much, how, how many butterflies were involved there, but how much did you know that, uh, you know, you were, you were slowly but surely living the American dream, so to speak? Yeah, you know, it was the whole time, you know, from uh, the time I, I actually graduated from Notre Dame and I had the opportunity to coach there for four years. And then when I went to work at IBM in the early 80s, when uh, most right. basically no one had computers. And, you know, I was the, uh, there was only two uh, African-Americans in my office at IBM at that particular time and probably around 50-something people. Uh, but then, you know, going to Eastern Michigan and, and frankly, you know, the biggest one, I had butterflies along the way all the time. Uh, but really the biggest one was going to Iowa State. You know, when you look at the state of Iowa back then in 1993, yeah. you know, when you, you look at, you know, the two million people in that state, yeah. <laughs> you know, a town of 25,000, not a whole lot looks like me. 
And uh, I was single at the time. I'd been divorced. I was single. And then ultimately, uh, Sheila came into my life and moved there with me. So we were an interracial couple in Ames, Iowa. Yeah. You know, so um, there were a lot of uh, firsts and a lot of experiences. And uh, uh, But I grew. You know, seven years there, I, I learned a lot and grew as a, grew as a person. You know, you just brought it up with you and Sheila. Did you learn to become deaf or did you learn to, if someone questioned you or your situation, to confront them straightforward? How, how did you approach that when people, because, you know, people do weird things. Yeah, I always rose above it, Tim. You know, my, uh, you know, I look back at some of my experiences and I, I wish I had challenged some, you know, particularly in, with some of the police that stopped me along the way. Uh, yeah. As I got older, I wish I had stopped, challenged them. But then the other piece was, uh, you know, I was just always take the high road and try and do things that was right. And, um, you know, I, um, I, I just it, it internalized it. And, and uh, I remember, you know, the old Division One A Athletic Directors Association that, that existed with Dutch Bachman. And I remember going to a meeting and, you know, one of the athletic directors there who clearly didn't want me in the room um, and I remember him talking to another group that I could hear. And he's, you know, he said, what is he doing here? And, you know, you, you can either react to it uh, or just move on. And, you know, I, I just moved on because I wasn't about trying to change that old man's thought process. Yeah. So, uh, but, and then there was many more who embraced me. Uh, so in, in all those situations, I just rose above it. I was going to say, you were the – you were the odd man in the room for a long time, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. That, that, yeah. No matter who you are, no matter what your situation is, that's an interesting situation. Who is the one or two people that really reached down or reached a, across and pulled you up, so to speak? Uh, Gene, as you look back on your career. You know, um, I'd have to give a lot of recognition to Mike Cleary, who, God bless him, passed away. Uh, he's the executive director of NACTA, our national uh, association. Um, he put me on committees like right away. Uh, he was a Notre Dame fan too, and he was yeah. their offices in Cleveland, so we had some connections. But <laughs> he, uh, you know, he embraced me right away. Uh, I was on active committees, which put me in the room uh, yeah. with a lot of the outstanding ADs. Then there was Seth Dempsey, who was the athletic director in Arizona, became the uh, president of the NCAA. Uh, he became a big mentor of mine, and, and then Delos Dodds. Uh, who was the athletic really? director yeah. of Texas. Yeah, those, those three guys, um, I would have to say, um, you know, they were very supportive of me from the very beginning. Um, they, uh, I mean, I said, and, and, and Mike Cleary put me on committees that made no sense. Now, part of it is they wanted diversity in the room. But part of it was providing me an opportunity to get experience. And uh, in Delos, man, I – and I learned so much from him, and, and he would come into meetings, and I may be at, at a table or at a desk, and he would come and sit next to me, you know, and, yeah. and his colleagues and, and people he was in the business with were sitting up front or sitting somewhere else. He would come sit next to me, and, and, um, and it, so he, and we'd have great conversations. So those three I probably would give a lot of credit to. God, I just got goosebumps as you're talking about that because I remember talking to you in Delos in the back of the press box in Texas in 2006 when Ohio yeah. State played at Texas. And I, I walked up there because I was wanting to know why you guys, you know, didn't think of the idea of maybe prorating ticket prices or putting <laughs> tickets on eBay, you know, because you know what the tickets went for that night. But 
But the thing, what, what struck me was, though, I'm talking to the probably the two most, uh, maybe not powerful, I don't know what you call it, but, but, but the heads of the two most uh, prolific sports programs, athletic departments in the country, and it was you and the lost Dodge. That, that probably still gives you a little bit of goosebumps, doesn't it? That, oh, it does. You know, yeah. uh, every time I talk about those guys, I get goosebumps. And, uh, you know, the experience that I've had with him, that one, uh, uh, and many others, you know, he and I were – I was at Iowa State. Uh, we were in the Big 8. And uh, then I was on the committee to help move from the Big 8 to the Big 12. Yeah. And the last was at Texas, obviously, at that time. And being in the room with him and – and negotiating those deals, and and um, you know he was part of the original CBS contract negotiations for the basketball tournament. Being in the room with him, and I mean it was just great experiences, and he he was he was phenomenal. Okay, this you know when you and I were uh, conversing about this before I, I, I got you to come on my podcast, I told you one of the things I wanted to bring up was the fact that uh, you you have. You didn't just go your own way, but you brought people with you. I mean, Pat Chun is the athletic director of Washington State, an Asian-American. Martin Germond is now, he went from Boston College now to UCLA, an African-American. He's now the uh, athletic director at UCLA. Uh, Heather Like was at Ohio State, I think, when you came along, but you promoted her and brought her along, and too. And she went from, I think, Eastern Michigan, ironically, to uh, right. Pittsburgh, where she is the athletic director. Uh, did, did you have it in your mind – uh, that you were going to not just be who you were, but bring people along with you if, in fact, they were deserving to be brought along. What, just give me your, uh, your mindset. Yeah, you know, I, I, I did, Tim, and, and it was intentional. And, and, you know, back in the day, we had a pipeline. When I was at Arizona State, <clears throat> we used to have these uh, meetings, and we called them the pipeline of, of young, um, uh, up-and-coming African-American males who aspired to be athletic directors. And, and you try to give them uh, some guidance and, and uh, experiences along the way. And, and then when obviously when I got to Ohio State, um, you know, Heather was our compliance officer and, and Pat was in our external affairs. And, and I, I began a little group called the Group of Six. And, yeah. and uh, there were people who wanted to be athletic directors. And, and uh, Ben Jay was a part of that. And, and so after I hired him from uh, the Pac-12, and so uh, we just tried to give them experiences, um, sent them down actually to North Carolina, um, and they visited Kevin White at Duke, uh, uh, Debbie Yao uh, was at North Carolina State, and Ron Wellman at Wake Forest, because all those schools were there. So they, I think they stayed three days and toured yeah. those schools, met with those ADs, uh, brought Joe Oklahoma, Joe particularly uh, on our campus. Uh, for a day to visit with them and just had a lot of programming uh, just to get them ready. And uh, uh, I've always felt that that was uh, an opportunity that I have. And then there's obviously a, a number of young puppies across the country that I've mentored who some are now ADs that weren't necessarily a part of my shop. But that that's an important part uh, for someone yeah. like me to do. Well, I mean, even Diana Sabo now, I think, is your right-hand person or one of your, one of your right-hand people. <laughs> right. And uh, it's not, like I said, it wasn't just – minorities it was it was females also uh did, did, was it because of your background but was it because of your upbringing was it because of discussions with your mom way back when what what just inspired you to be that to be that fellow yeah it's just it's my parents so first and foremost and it's about helping others and respect and, and providing opportunities and then obviously my career path along the way you know i had people do that for me and, and i wanted to make sure i built that into what i do 
um, you know, women in particular, you know, and you know, yeah. people don't notice. Uh, Sheila was a senior uh, uh, associate athletic director at UNLV when we met. She she was on a on a track to become an athletic director. She chose to uh, sacrifice that and, and and come with me. And and so I I had an appreciation for why women should be in a leadership position for a long time. We needed to do better with that. Uh, so when you watch, when you have a chance to help someone like Heather uh, be in that seat or uh, Diana down the road, and uh, you know, I want to be a part of that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My, my wife was one of the uh, one of the early uh, scholarship uh, athletes at Ohio State. She was a high jumper and a little bit of a sprinter right. and stuff way back in the seventies. And uh, you know, it's just it's just amazing how far it's come. As you look, Gene, uh, how how far has that realm of things come in in the sense of leadership? Do you is it real or is it still you know, for want of another term, affirmative action going on. I mean, do, do, do yeah. you get a sense that it's real? Yeah, I do. I think it's real. You know, it's, it's gotten so much better uh, from the people who are making hiring decisions. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when Martin was hired at UCLA, yeah. I knew all the last four candidates. And it was a very diverse pool. Uh, when Heather was hired at Pittsburgh, I knew the last three candidates. A very diverse pool. And it takes leadership to, to make that commitment that you're going to uh, put people of color or put women in, in a leadership position. And so I've seen it change. I think there's nine uh, black athletic directors in the FBS right now. Um, and while that's uh, not the progress that I would like to see, because there used to be me and Charles Harris back in 1986. He was at Arizona yeah. State. Then McKinley Boston came online at Rhode Island. Uh, but uh, the reality is, um, you know, there, there's improvement. I have hope. Uh, when I give speeches at our national convention now and I look out in the audience, I see the diversity. I see it. And so it's in every unit of athletic administration. So the pipeline is strong. Uh, yeah. And I think leadership is doing a better job. Uh, you have not stood in – not only have you not stood in the way, but you've encouraged the athletes at Ohio State to take thought-out stands – you know, thought-out stances in this time. Uh, the, the worst thing you can do, I think, in a situation like this is just be quiet. You know, I think Martin Luther King Jr. said that better than anybody. Uh, uh, no matter what your thoughts are, let people know about them. Uh, that is different from when you were a player way back when, isn't it? Because, I mean, were, were you, right. were, were, I think it, white and black, you were encouraged to keep your mouth shut, right? I mean, oh, yeah. but now, you weren't encouraged then, you were told. <laughs> yeah, you were told, exactly. There's a big difference, you know. Uh, but uh, do you see, I don't know, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this, about people using their voice for good, for change, uh, and you see the athletes doing it. What does that do for you as an, you know, an elder statesman now, as an athletic director who's sort of paved the way? Well, it's refreshing, you know, when you you know that your student athletes can express their thoughts and their feelings on a platform. And you know, our job is to educate them, educate them and help make sure that they're what they're doing is clear, that it makes sense, that it's delivered the right way and and understand the repercussions because there will be. Yeah. And so they um, so we just have to give them that education and get out of the way. Um, and I it's a beautiful thing for me. You know, like you and I, we were back in the day, we were told it's, you know, you yeah. just swallow it, move on. And, and, but today, it's really, it's really a blessing to see, particularly because we have some mature, educated athletes. 
you know, when you, you, you think about him. Uh, and Seth Towns never played for a dime for us yet, but he's yeah. a smart young man in his own hometown and has thoughts and feelings, and I think he's doing it the right way. So it's, it's refreshing to me. I'm, I'm glad I have, a, I have an opportunity to be a part of it. Yeah, I was going to say, you get, you've been around Jordan Fuller. You remember, you know, I mean, you, uh, Wyatt uh, Davis, some of these guys are just really, they're intelligent guys, you know, just, uh, and, you know, it's funny, your, your background is like mine to a certain extent, but the opposite. I mean, I, I remember back in uh, Lufkin, Texas, we moved from Demopolis, Alabama to Lufkin, Texas, and I was part of a pilot program where I took uh, my uh, driver's education at Lufkin Dunbar High School. Even though Lufkin was, uh, high school was integrated, they still had two high schools, and, and then I was there when we totally integrated. And it's just amazing, just two steps here, what, how much the, the uh, scenery changes, if you follow my right. drift of opening your eyes to things and stuff. Hey, last thing. Uh, uh, it, it, do you expect – what do you expect to come from this now? Like when I had Larry James on last week, we talked about this is another major step because this is enlightened people to the fact that, yes uh, – this still is a major divide in this country in some respects. Do you expect this next 10 years to take us over the hump in that regard? You know, I hope so. You know, I'm not a person that believes you're going to eliminate racism uh, and hate. I think you're going to significantly reduce it. And um, I really do. Uh, now, I think some structural things have to happen. You know, you know we have a code and silence uh, in our police force, just like we have that in a lot of our, our, our cultures and, and organizations uh, where people don't want to snitch, but we have to create an environment where there is self-policing, you know, uh, in that environment. You know, we have to create a way where um, the, the, the accused person and the accuser are heard. And, and the, those people who have a history of abuse in, in their jobs can be dealt with. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they have some unbelievable protections in the police force where the mayor or city council or even the police chief can't, can't deal with people who have uh, behavioral problems after they're hired. We need to find a way to fix that. Uh, so there's just a number of different structural things we need to do. Uh, we need to fix the economic imbalance. You know, Columbus has some challenges. Uh, relative to the economic disparity between whites and blacks. And, mm -hmm. and how do we solve that? How do we mitigate that? So I think there's some things structurally we have to do. Uh, but I think the conversation is so important, Tim. You know, what you're doing and all the other media people are doing, providing that voice, I think it's got to be talked about more and more and more. The real-life Wednesdays that Urban Meyer started at Ohio State I, just were eye-opening to me it just because they weren't about anything about football, et cetera. Right. Y'all have had other programs now that have blossomed sort of from that, you know, and uh, I, I don't know how good you feel about the track y'all are on just specifically at Ohio State in that regard. Yeah, we have what we call a Buckeye Inclusion Committee. It started years ago, and it was more at that particular time around sexual orientation and, and uh I think you remember the, you know, our hockey team wanted to do, yep. if you can play, you can play. And, and uh, there's been a number of initiatives from there, you know, mental health and just a number of different things that they've been responsible for. And this is one uh, that will be heightened this year. And so yep. uh, making sure that we uh, continue to develop our athletes the right way and, and keep the issues in front of them is something we always do. Gene Smith, these are interesting times, man. It never changes, right? There's always something coming around the corner, right, when you're an athletic director. That's true, Tim. I appreciate your hard work, man. Hey, thank you for coming on, my man. I, I owe you. I owe you a lunch. Let's do it. Let's do it. When, when we get out of COVID-19 quarantine, we'll have lunch. I appreciate it, Gene. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You know, uh, Boston, as I said, Gene's had a very interesting uh, career. Yeah, and uh, you've known him, uh, what, Ten, maybe 10 years longer than I have. Hey, man, I chased the car when he was getting interviewed out at the uh, <laughs> out, out east of Newark, uh, his final interview before he got the job. I mean, he was, he was a big-time hire when they got him back yeah. in 2005. He's, um, I was just going to say, I, I've known him long enough to have um, a pretty good relationship and, and respect for what he does. And the, You brought it up in the interview that the trail that he's blazed and, and brought along so many others, it's really uh, impressive what Gene Smith has done. And he and I do not uh, – agree on every decision that he's ever made and and if you're critical of him he doesn't uh you know hold a grudge forever and he'll talk it out and and, and respect your opinion in return let me hold up my hand because yeah. i don't want to interrupt you i get there people get upset <laughs> when i interrupt you so i'm just holding my hand just stop paying attention to that Tim. we're gonna, gonna have our show the one thing i was gonna i was gonna bring up to him that uh i forgot because you, know, you get kind of wrapped up in things is there are two people who are always going to be booed whenever they're introduced. They are athletic directors and commissioners. Why do you think that is, by the way? Well, mis- misplaced anger for one. Yes. <laughs> but because they're making the decisions, and they're easier to blame because they're not on the field. Right. And they're easier to second guess because that's a job that you and I could more realistically do um, you yeah. know, from our seat. Theoretically. We probably you know couldn't because you, you think that it's always about you know football and – you know, I'm, the ones that come to my mind with with him are, you know, I thought that Thad Mata that, that lasted too long. That Gene needed to make a move for basketball. That they the decision they made to not take the bowl ban in 2011, I thought was the wrong one at the time, and that it could have saved 2012. But you know, you're, we're looking at two or three major decisions that impact football and basketball, and he's in charge of 34, 35 other sports for an athletic department that has a 220 million dollar budget every year, mm-hmm. and. That's a hard deal. Very few people in the country have a more difficult job uh, and more pressure. You know, he, he's trying to org- organize workouts and COVID and and all these protests that are going on and supporting for Black Lives Matter. And that's just a fraction of the deal because he's got to hire and fire coaches for every sport that's that's under the umbrella over down the street here. Um, and for me, it's so like that's why I say people that want to fire college presidents or fire athletic directors or commissioners because of one bad decision. Well, he's also made 999 other ones right before the one that I take exception with, which is the one team that I cover. Now, would other could other places make a fire firing over that? Sure. No, but, wait a minute. You're talking about you were talking about the Thad Mata. Yeah. Okay. Because you also cover Ohio State football, and I think a lot of people are going, "Wait a minute." Yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about here? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't mean to disrupt it. Here's but, the thing, though, man. Think about it. But yeah. that's what I mean. There's only been so Thad few things. Mata. Thad Mata went to the Final Four. Thad Mata got some things done when he was there. Sometimes you give people the benefit of the doubt when they're going when they you know for sure they're going through some tough times on and off the uh, court and I think he did that with that I think he I think he did maybe extend it a little bit longer than maybe he should have because Thad just physically almost couldn't do the job anymore especially when it came to recruiting but uh but I'm, I'm not defending it I'm just saying sometimes when, when people have you know if 
taking you places, you ride along with them for a little while longer. And that's also why they're so hard. You know, those decisions are so hard, and they have different information, obviously, than right. I do. Because if we're looking at 2011, and you were intimately involved in covering everything that went into that decision, Gene Smith did not think that that punishment would include a bowl ban, which is why they didn't take one in, right. in 11. And I get that. In hindsight, and to me, because I was looking at it from the outside, I thought there's no way that Ohio State will not get one. But that's, you know, again, we're, all, we're quibbling over two or three things and maybe one year of basketball or two years, which, again, that's also not my expertise because, as you, sa- as you said and reminded everybody, I'm the football guy. And, you know, throughout my tenure, and that, that was at ESPN, they were telling me not to cover well, basketball. Well, as it turned out, too, in 2011 – I mean, the actual penal part of the situation, they were considering giving Ohio State a two-year bowl ban. It changed it to one. Yeah. Uh, whereas all the experts I ever spoke to during that time, including Gene Marsh, a guy who had been involved on, on that committee but also helped defend people on uh, afterwards, uh, was they, a lot of people were stunned that yeah. Ohio State got a one-game one game bowl ban. But that was, the, that was the wrong time in NCAA history to be doing <laughs> to have a few yeah. dis- di- digressions from uh, from from the rules, and as it's turned out, like I had with uh, uh, Larry James, I had him on last week. Turns out, you know, in a week, year or two, almost everything they got found out for will be legal, legal in again. the NCAA yeah. eyes. So, yeah. so I, I know that wasn't what you wanted to talk about, but I, I my my long winded rambling digression point was that Gene Smith has done really a remarkable job in his role, and it goes well beyond what he's done purely with athletics at Ohio State. He is, and you see this when he's on the NCAA committee for selection committee for for basketball, uh, when he was on the college football playoff committee, he is one of the most respected um, administrators, athletic directors in the entire country. And some of that comes just by being the Ohio State AD, but really when you mention all the places that he's gone and building his career, um, he is uh, just as widely respected as it gets in this profession. And He's not somebody that you'd think would be ever booed if they stepped foot on the turf at, uh, out there waving, waving to the crowd at the horseshoe. You know what's funny about that car that just went by is uh, we're sitting out here on the Roosters uh, patio, and it had glass packs, uh, basically. That's my euphemism for uh, enhanced exhaust uh, package. And I guarantee you I could outrun that car myself. <laughs> that shows you how bad, how bad that car is, but at least it sounds in that man's it, mind Really good. Sounds dangerous. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. I mean, let's move on, though. Uh, one of the things I brought with to begin with is, uh, with Gene, was, you know, how far is the football team come in a week? Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they're still getting their feet on the on the ground as far as how they're covering, you know, how they're handling uh, the reopening of the Woodhays Athletic Center. Nine players at a time, plus one uh, fellow from the Mickey Marotti uh, staff mm-hmm. working with players. As you documented last week, you were out there when they first opened it. You know, guys going in in shifts, et cetera. You don't have these big congregation of players yet. And, and I said, is it looking – are you looking more and more confident like there's going to be a football season? And I'm just paraphrasing him now, but, but here's the point. The point right now is they're just trying to find out around the country where they, they can even – have these kind of workouts yet yeah. and on a safe basis. And that's what they're probing right now. The, the season, like Gene said to us uh, several weeks ago, the idea on the season, you're going to have to start getting questions about that answered maybe first of middle of July. The NCAA, of course, came out with this six-week plan, mm-hmm. which is what I'd come out with a long time ago. <laughs> it's expected, called the Tim May plan. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why they didn't call it that, but I'd, I would probably have to get some uh, uh, trademark rights or copyrights from it. But uh, 
But I digress. Uh, the bottom line is that was no surprise. That's what you have to have to lead into a season. It's not going to be a six-week full preseason camp. Yeah. You know, people you know looked at the six weeks and thought that what it was going to be. No, it's not that. It's going to be it's just a gradual step up to probably, in essence, a three-week preseason camp when it gets right down to it, three and a half weeks. But but they're still in the uh, uh, toddler years of seeing of whether they can actually even have workouts. And you're already seeing, you know, that signs that not everyone is out of the woods. Houston, yeah. uh, the University of Houston had to put a halt to their voluntary workouts after they had, uh, you know, several uh, positive tests. We talked about it a week or two ago that Alabama and Oklahoma State had already publicly released uh, or had reported that they had positive tests on their campus. And now you've got, you know, NFL starting to go back to work, and, and there were reports that Ezekiel Elliott had tested positive for coronavirus, which would be another big glowing sign. Remember, the NBA is kind of what kicked this off. Like, if there are positive tests there, like, we need to stop all of this. You know, at least yeah. at least that's when more people started uh, recognizing the, the threat that we were under in March. So, if you're, and I, I keep saying this, like, if you're going to have 22 guys on the field, 85 scholarship players, and, and have a football game, the fact that you're at nine is just that first, as you're saying, to use your analogy. That's that's crawling. Then you're going to have to get up a little bit and start stumbling around. It. Are you going to have more tests when you have, you know, 22 guys in a workout before you get to 85? And then putting on pads and playing full games. There's there is still a long way to go, and really not that long a period of time. And right. there are, there is this impression I think to people. Okay, well they're back and they have voluntary workouts. They're going to get their eight hours and they're going to have that training camp plan. Everything is on schedule and and it's going to be like normal. What's well, not? I still think there is an extremely high likelihood that we're that there will be uh, changes to the schedule and yeah. setbacks that we're st- we're still you know I've talked about this plan of Big Ten only and. Uh, maybe 10 games. There's traction for that. Multiple people that I've talked to continue to believe that that's where this is heading. Mm-hmm. It's still not going to be a normal season one way or the other. Gene said it on your podcast that you have to prepare for massive changes if you're a fan that wants to be at a game. And I think that there will still be others that have to be made in terms of the schedule. Mm-hmm. This thing is not on a you know, yeah, full speed ahead back yeah. to a normal season. Yeah, this is a SpaceX launching back into space. Uh, this is uh, testing the boost, actually testing the rocket engine to see if it even works. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bad analogy, but you know where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when I wrote that story, like, what was that, two, three months ago? Yeah. You know, I anticipated eventually that that I think there was a better chance than not that it was going to be all conference schedules, intra conference scheduling because that's the best way to ensure if people are getting the job done the right way you've been to familiar hotels you know what they're capable of you've been to locker rooms there you know whether they're feasible as far as having them sanitary etc so there's all kinds of things and we just saw this past week i think oregon had a little bit of a bump or spike or whatever you want to call it and it's yep COVID-19 cases. Uh, I was down in Texas visiting my mom for the first time in two months when my brother and I were allowed to uh, visit her because she's in a tough situation now. And uh, But then again, I, I went down and, and uh, had dinner with my brother and his family in Houston. <laughs> and as soon as I left there, there's a big reports that Houston especially yep. has had this big jump. So maybe you're sitting a little too close to me right now. We're five and a half not. feet instead of six. But but you don't know. That's This is the unknown. It's what you're dealing with right now is you've got to let this thing play itself out to see 
who does have it and who doesn't have it, and where's it going to go from there? Because the, the grand reopening was, I think, premature. I mean, in a lot of respects, but people were so pushing for it. And then, of course, you pile on the pile on top of that, and I mean pile on, you know, the the uh, riots and the uh, marches and the protests that took place after the George Floyd killing, uh, you know, by a, by a Minneapolis policeman. And just the things that have happened since then that have just thrown gasoline on that fire. It's it's the timing is like ridiculous. Yeah, and it's I think it's hard to get a feel for when everything is going to or should be or could be fully reopened. And like there was this sense, you know, maybe right before the riots, um, which that's a whole other matter that that's complicated things. And I think it. I don't know if all the data's in or what's going to happen with positive cases from that. Um, you know, I, I hate to even think about it in those terms because what they're protesting is so important, and I fully support uh, their ability to do so. And and we've talked about that a number of times on our shows here. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that's another part of it that's going to impact just purely from our world in college football. If there are more tests and more positive tests, and these numbers keep going up, like what just happened at Houston, then you're going to have problems. It's not a situation that everything is magically done right and this the schedule they're going to play on september 5th in the horseshoe and a hundred thousand people are going to be there that's just not the situation like we've talked about on the show many times uh until they get the vaccine where you can go get a vaccine and be pretty assured you're not going to get it (laughs) no one can really rest easy in this situation and uh being foolish now is the worst thing you can do from a social distancing standpoint and not wearing a mask in public at least when you're in stores and things like that that's not asking very much of a person hey moving past that real quick before we go uh you know we've we talk about different uh, uh, position groups mm-hmm. on the football team. As you look at it right now and you're pondering, what is that one position where you, you're not sure about whether, you know, uh, the, the, the chain link there is going to be sufficient uh, going into this season, uh, going into preseason camp. Is there one on this team that's, that's tro- not troubling you because yeah. <laughs> you're not coaching? I'm not troubled. Yeah. But is concerning. I think you know the two that we talked about before spring camp. You know, it was, is running back situation going to be okay? And then what about the secondary? And I, I honestly didn't ever have any real concern about the secondary. Yeah, I, maybe I was in the minority there. But I've been a you, you and I have talked about these guys for a long time. But I am a big Cameron Brown guy, and there, are, you know, Berm goes to bat and says Seven Banks is going to be. Uh, an NFL draft pick at this time next year, and I don't disagree. That we saw him walk in last last Monday, Tim, and yeah, he looked like he had added you know 20 more pounds. We saw him on the first day of spring in March. He looks even bigger than that, and um, that dude I think has a chance to be a real a real stud. And we've beaten the drum a bunch of times on this show for Josh Proctor. Um, they're they're going to be fine at safety. I really uh, truly believe that. So I don't have concerns about it. And then you see Trey Sermon walk in. And he is everything you could possibly want physically. And I've watched. What about I'm, running back Trey Yeah, Sermon. running back. Yeah. yeah. Watching him, what he did, just starting as a freshman in that game against Ohio State, and then what he's done before he got hurt uh, for Oklahoma last year. You put him in this offense, that's scary. I'd, I don't think that there is a weak position. Yeah. Marcus Crowley being healthy, you know, you can still have some uncertainty with guys that aren't experienced. And yes, Trey Sermon is new to that unit, but. I mean, those are the two that everyone will hold up across the country and say, 
well, do they have that? Is that a national yeah. title because of these two positions? They do have to prove that when they get on the field. But if 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 it's me and if I'm Ryan Day trying to go to sleep, I'm not worried about either position. Yeah, I, I think that they're going to be fine top to bottom. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, like we saw Jeffrey Okuda grow, yeah. but he wasn't instantly what he was last year. Uh, it's you know, uh, so those guys are going to have their their growing pains in the secondary. Yeah, because I mean, every day, every play, it's a different thing. Uh, but we've seen Cam. We've seen Cam play. He played in the. Big Ten championship yep. game. He played in the uh, in the in the college football playoff yeah, game. Yeah. I mean, they've gotten their taste under fire. Uh, Seven Banks, same way. Um, you know, the running back thing. We saw Marcus Crowley was coming on big time. Man. and if Marcus Crowley, man, if he comes back, you know, Trey Sermon's. You know, he's coming back from a knee injury, but he looks 100 percent based on everything I've heard about him. And if uh, Marcus Crowley's back 100 percent, that gives them the luxury, as we talked about earlier, of letting Master Teague the third take his time, not have to yeah. be there on opening day as the featured back. And uh, so you're right. I think this team, by the middle of the year, is going to look so much stronger, kind of like what we talked about last year, yeah. than it does at the beginning because of those very things. Here's what's I th- what I think. I've kicked this around in my brain. We just had running backs week last week at Letterman Road. Yeah. Talked about Crowley. And it was hard because, you know, that the way he was running against Maryland – you know, you could tell, you could see the confidence, and I had talked oh, yeah. to Tony Alford before. Like, he's like, this guy was not recruited at a high enough level. Being the state, you know, Florida Gatorade Player of the Year, they don't just hand that out down there. You you beat out a bunch of dudes for that honor, and they were thrilled to sign this guy. Oh uh, yeah, and and the way he worked, that whole dynamic, on, the way they so, got him was crazy because they lost that guy, <laughs> and then they were more excited about the guy they got late. Go ahead, and now. you could see the fact they were. He was starting to push more, and what he did in the Maryland game, he had a lot more of the all-around, you know, sort of elusiveness out in open space that looked more like J.K. Yeah, and that was missing when Master Teague was at the end of the year. He sort of hit that wall. It's it's just crazy to think in your mind like they they pulled the red shirt off Marcus Crowley. He has 88 yards or whatever it is against Maryland. You're still building for the home stretch. If Master Teague wasn't the only option in tailback against Clemson, yeah. How does that look? I mean, yeah. do you have to rush J.K. Dobbins back, you know, to play through the foot injury? And I'm not saying that he could have – Marcus Crowley could have been J.K. Dobbins in that game, but he would have given another option because Teague was – he didn't get a carry at all in the Big Ten championship game. Uh, you know, uh, Spencer Holbrook and I had been looking at those numbers for the last five weeks. I think it was 31 carries for 90 yards. He wasn't giving them – you know, 45 came against Rutgers. He wasn't at that same level that he was early in the year. Right. He would have at least had another option with Marcus Crowley while he was on the rise and not, you know, right. still going to have some true freshman stuff but, that we talked about with Banks. And but others, you could but, see it just coming on in Marcus Crowley. I mean, I was down, I was down on the field by the time he got hurt in that game and just the moves oh he was boy. making. Uh, that's a guy who's feeling confident not only about about the blocking in front of him, but what, what he was seeing yeah. and where he was playing and just kind of letting it loose. Slowly yeah. but surely, you have to, you know, they let it loose. And that's where the great ones really step up. And, you know, Master Teague third, same way. I mean, there's a huge difference between when you get to play a pretty good bit and then you become the guy mm-hmm. uh, and you've got those uh, – uh, you've got that experience behind you. I really expect him, once he gets back this year, to be a different back than he was even last year. But he was quite effective when they needed him uh, during some of those uh, really grinded-out games. Yeah, I think that that's the part of it, too. Like uh, I asked Beanie Wells about that. Like, if we're talking about these yards, yeah, it sounds like uh, a criticism, and in some ways uh, it is, but it's also just pointing to, hey, this is the part where you grow. You don't 
Bumbini went out there, he wasn't a finished product as a right. freshman his first year. And I know that Master T was a redshirt freshman, so he'd been through the program. But you have to have some setbacks before you're going to grow. And Ryan Day calls it that, you know, growth and learning through failure. Right. He had moments where he wasn't ready to be the primary tailback. Okay. It's unfortunate you didn't get the spring. You got hurt, and now you have to go through rehab. But all that, all that experience, those reps, knowing what it was like to come up short, what it'll take to get to the next level, he's going to learn from all that. And, and sometimes I think, like, is Teague not getting enough credit? Am I being too hard on Master Teague? I'm, I can't figure out, like, no. where the ceiling is for him because because well. I, I am a huge Trey Sermon guy, and I, th- that's clear. I think he's going to be the starter, but – what does this mean for Master Teague moving forward? And he gets to define that yeah. when he but gets healthy. But here's the thing. You know more about Master Teague than you know about Trey Sermon. Right. Because you watched him play. You watched him develop. And the thing about it is about, about experience is it teaches you what you don't know <laughs> more than anything else. It teaches you the. It teaches you if you're a learning, yearning mm-hmm. uh, running back, it teaches you, well, that, that worked against Indiana <laughs> That's not going to work against Michigan. That's yep. not going to work. I found out that doesn't work against Clemson. You know what I mean? Those little lessons you learn as you grow, and then you develop these other skills, these other parts of your game. And that's where I think, uh, you know, uh, they don't need to push him back if, in fact, Trey Sermon's ready to go and Marcus Crowley are ready to go. But I think Master Teague's going to come back in the middle of the year and be and could be quite the force exactly when they need him. And it's also another reminder of what I just said about the Fiesta Bowl. You want to have as many options yeah. as possible. Oh, yeah. And, and if that's one you get back, a guy who's got almost 800 yards running in the Big Ten, you can do a lot worse than that. I'll tell you what, though. I just rewatched again that uh, when Jeffrey Okuda ripped uh, the ball. No. I, I'm, 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 no. I'm telling you, man, that, that's stunning. It is stunning how egregious that, uh, that replay uh, reversal uh, was we don't need 30 more minutes on no we don't but i'm just I, I just kept looking at I, I i saw it the other day and i just go man has anybody ever gotten a real true explanation no uh, other than the the mamby pamby and why did it go to that kind of explanation in the first place i mean Ohio state fans there are things you can live with and things that you never you know will accept and that, that will be one of them for sure but you know what Maybe we'll come back and talk about that more next week, Austin. <laughs> Good. I never get tired of talking about officiating conferences. If I don't have another big-time guest on, I plan on having a few big-time guests on as we keep going here. I really appreciate Gene Smith for coming on my podcast. Um, really interesting, enlightening conversation with a fellow who started out in basically Cleveland, uh, working with his dad, experiencing some uh, essences of, of racism, et cetera, as a, as a youngster growing up, going to Notre Dame, mm-hmm. pulling himself up by his bootstraps to a certain extent, but also getting uh, having other people help him along the way to become uh, the athletic director, basically the most powerful uh, athletic department in the country from the terms of uh, width and breadth. Yep. Uh, that's probably the same things, width and breadth, <laughs> but just uh, from – how far he's come and also his power just nationally in the athletic director ranks. I mean, it was a very enlightening interview. Yeah. But anyway, until next week, this is Tim May for Boston Ward. Thanks for joining us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.